welcome. And tonight we are continuing the outward journey. We've had a bunch of journeys this year. We've had the inward journey, which was all about identity, who you are and who you're not in Christ. Then we had the upward journey, which is all about getting to know God and being transformed ourselves, beholding and becoming. As we behold God, we become transformed. And now we are talking about the outward journey. And our tagline for the outward journey to help us remember what it's all about is this. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus now sends us. And we're going to read the, the passage right now that this comes out of. But this is as good a time as any to warn you about this message. There's a lot of Bible in this message. And depending on, I know it's good, but depending on how much I meander around in each verse, you should be becoming more and more nervous as the minutes drag on. <laughs> I can either plow right through it and do this message in about 25 with no frills, or we can stop and talk every time I want to stop and talk, and we'll have an intermission and we'll be here so long. So I'm hoping to get somewhere in the middle. But this is the passage that our tagline comes out of. Come on now, quicker, don't fail me now. John 20, nope, oh, come on now. John 20, 19 to 22. Jesus has just been crucified and resurrected, and he's about to pop into a room and surprise his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And they freaked out. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We are all sent by Jesus in the same way, and we've already talked about a little bit about what that means, that Jesus was sent by God the Father. And so we are going to spend this month, we've kind of been interrupted with an, with an amazing baptism service last week, but this month is about the church as mission. What does it mean that the church is part of this outward journey? And we're kind of focusing on the book of Acts. And you know, occasionally, my senior pastor, Pastor Cameron Wright, who's amazing, gives me a lot of freedom. And he'll say things like, this is what we're talking about, but you, you go ahead and you do your thing. If you want to change some things, that's fine. And I do, frequently. But the description for this week's sermon caught my eye. And it said, craft a sermon that shows how Paul started churches, and the church was a countercultural force in the world. And I thought, wow, that's good. I'm going to do that. We're going to talk about that today. So I want to talk about the church as a counterculture, or if this image works better for you, a kingdom beachhead on earth. The church is the point at which God's culture and God's kingdom is invading and taking ground. It is the storm front, as one book put it. I love that book, actually. I don't have a picture of it here, but I have in the past. So let's talk about it. First, let's talk about this thing called church. When I show this picture of a nice white building with a steeple, probably in some idyllic country setting, we have all kinds of thoughts, do we not? I went ahead and I just wrote down five or six things that came to my mind or that I thought might come to people's mind when they saw that and they heard the word church. They might think church, building, uh, gathering, holiness. Maybe they think old-fashioned. Maybe the word restrictive would come to their mind. Maybe the word joyful. Maybe. But maybe the word oppressive. They might think church and they might think safety. You know, they might think back to their youth and think, man, everything felt good when I was in church. I remember that little country church. Or they might think, you know, traditional, something along those lines. 
But we have a grid, do we not, for this thing called church. When we say church, something comes to your mind. Whether or not it's accurate, biblically, doesn't really matter. You think of something, don't you? And you probably always have. Because this is 2017 in America. But, you know, we need to remember that God has an intention for church too. And it might differ from what we think. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. This is Paul. We're going to focus a lot on Paul. Talking about what God wants to do with the church. And this is kind of a mashup of 8 to 12. Get your Bibles up. Read it yourself for the full version. Here we go. This grace was given to me, again it's Paul, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. And here's the mystery. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to, the, according to his eternal purpose that he had accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you might have heard before that God's plan for the world is the church. And this is true. There's a lot that talks about how people will relate to the church. You know, let your good works shine before men, you know. And we talk a lot about other people noticing you and taking note that maybe it's, maybe it's by your love. I know that you're Christians. And there's a lot in the Bible about people viewing the church and having an opinion on it. But this would seem to say that even spiritual beings are looking at the church and that God is showing off through the church. That other spiritual beings and authorities and powers are looking at the church, the way the church does things, the culture of the church, and they're saying, wow, that's really wise. And God's like, yeah, that's right. That's how I do things around here. That's my church. That's my manifold wisdom displayed. And there's actually a quote by John Stott, who was quoted in David Guzik's commentary. And I found that in the Blue Letter Bible. That's right. You should all get it. This is what John Stott says. It is as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater. The world is the stage, and the church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's pretty intense. So we have an idea of what the church is. We have a grid for what it looks like, what it can offer us, maybe some of its foibles and maybe some of its blessings. And Paul, when he wrote this, he had a really good idea of what the church was, what it was for, and what God wanted to do through the church. But let's not forget, even though that sounds amazing, there was a time when this whole idea of displaying God's wisdom in the church was brand spanking new. Can you imagine being the guy that had to figure this out? Bringing the church, whatever that is, to a world without it. Enter the Apostle Paul. Is this good? You guys following along? This is a good flow? Excellent. In Acts 13, Paul gets kind of, I don't know, shanghaied by the Holy Spirit. Check this out. He's been saved. He's been hanging out in Jerusalem and Antioch long enough to become a leader. Something mysterious has just happened. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. 
That's all right. So I'm just going to keep talking while Shamrock fixes it. So in Acts 13, it says that the leaders of the church in Antioch are gathered. And you have a mixed crowd. You have Barnabas is there, also called the son of encouragement. You have Paul, then called Saul, who's there. You have the guy who grew up with King Herod Antipas. You have another guy named Simon, who they nicknamed the black man. Serious. So you have a mixed group of people from different backgrounds, different continents, and different socioeconomic backgrounds that are praying and fasting. God bless you, Shamrock. That is the slide. Praying and fasting together. And one day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. <laughs> so, after more fasting and prayer, no doubt, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So imagine the scene, okay? They're in Antioch, this church thing is taken off, it's going really well. And they know that Jesus has said, I'm going to send you out to the whole world. They know that God's plan since Genesis has always been to reach all nations. From the time God spoke to Abraham, he's like, hey, I've got my eyes set on everybody. I'm making a people to myself, but we're going to bless everybody. They know this. Jesus, before he took off to heaven, said, I'm sending you everywhere to make disciples. And I can imagine them sitting in Antioch one day saying, man, we should, somebody should do that. Somebody should, uh, somebody should go on a boat and, and go across the sea. And we need to have some missionary journeys. And they might be like, yeah, somebody should do that. Somebody really should. And I have just received a word from the Lord. It's Paul. Paul, you're the guy. You should go out and do that. And, you know, okay, that's probably not how it happened. But I imagine that might have been a little bit how it felt. The Holy Spirit sends Paul and Barnabas out. As far as we know, that's all the direction we got. Go out there and go get them, Tiger. What exactly is he doing? Come on, slides. Here we go. This is how Paul describes the experience later. In Acts 22, it, when he's going back to Jerusalem after a whole bunch of years of being a missionary, he's explaining to an angry mob what happened to him. Check this out. First, he gives some background about who he was before. Paul says to this angry mob, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem. That's good. Under Gamaliel. That's really good. That's the guy you want to be educated under. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. Angry mob, please don't hurt me. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. Now, Paul would not have been telling them anything they didn't know. He's reminding them of who he was. Now, they're angry about who he is, not who he was, but this is a good reminder. Guys, I'm a Jew, man. I'm from the right tribe. I've got the right background, the right education. You remember how zealous I was for the law? Man, I had it down. And then he tells them about his conversion experience. He met Jesus. He knocked me off my horse. I was blind. This guy named Ananias came and gave me my sight. And he says that God had a mission for me, and I accepted it, and I've been different ever since. And this is how he describes his moment with the Lord, where God confirmed his call to go. Acts 22, 17-22. He's still talking to the mob. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, Hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here will not accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, I love him, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. But the Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
The crowd listened until Paul said that word, and then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. I want to highlight two things right here. God says, get up and go, and Paul says, but Lord, I argued. He's like, no, 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 no. This is, this is, a, this is a good spot. Everybody here knows who I used to be. My testimony is really dramatic here. I mean, they, knew, they know I killed people. They knew I was, I was zealous for you. I should stay here. And Paul says, no, nope, you're going to the Gentiles. They're right. You've got to get out of here. And then you can also see something about the attitude of the times. That angry mob that he used to associate with, he used to be one of those guys. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in another place. When he mentions that he's going to the Gentiles, they want to kill him. There was such a tension between a large segment of the religious Jewish population and every other people group on earth. That when he says, God himself sent me on a mission, not to you guys, he told me to leave Jerusalem, and he told me to go to the Gentiles, they want to kill him. Man, that's pretty dramatic. So, come on, slide. Maybe if I make sound effects. Yes! Let's look at who Paul was. Just a snapshot. I haven't forgotten this message is about church, by the way, okay? But we're talking about the newness of the church and where it came from. We're going to guess how it's a counterculture, and we're going to read a whole bunch of Paul. We're actually going to let Paul end this service. But let's look at Paul. Paul was amazing at being Jewish. He was like a pro-Jew, man. He had the right heritage. He had the right education. He had tremendous national pride, and he was militant against threats to Judaism. When this thing called the Way popped up, he was like, we're going to get rid of these people. He went and he got letters from the authorities, and he was rounding them up, and he was taking care of business. He was known by other Jewish people as a zealous and righteous Jew. So who were the Jews? Well, I'm kind of painting with a broad brush, and none of this is meant to be insulting, by the way. You know, if the Jews walked around like they were God's gift to creation, guess why that is? They kind of were. So we can forgive a little bit of attitude, can we not? All right, who were the Jews? They were a proud but persecuted minority. They were people that clung fiercely to their laws and their traditions, and for the most part would not be swayed by any other prevailing culture. Period. I read a book called Judaism Before Jesus by a guy named Tomasino, and he just talked about how miraculous it was that their culture and that their religion survived through all the different empires that swept through that area and took them over and threatened them with death and made them abide by their laws, and they held firm to their traditions, to their God, to their culture, and to their national identity, come hell or high water, literally, no matter what, they would not yield. That's pretty intense. And the embodiment of this mentality, the guy who's the best at it in the first century, is Paul. And he's the guy that you send to the Gentiles? Are you serious? <laughs> really? And God's answer is yes. God sends an expert in Judaism to tell the world of non-Jews about Jesus and to form a new type of community. Obviously, God is doing something very new. Obviously, Paul had a very hard job. No one had a grid for what church was. They were just getting a grid for what Jesus did to their whole Jewish world. They were just getting an understanding of, how do I relate to the temple? 
Is Jerusalem still a sacred city? Should we stay? Should we go? What does this do to our laws? Do we still offer sacrifices? Do we not? They're wrapping their minds around all this stuff, and God comes and says, hey, get busy telling everybody else that's not even from your culture that they're welcome in. This is a mess, man. And the guy who gets the nod, shanghaied by the Holy Spirit, if you will, go out and get busy, we're going to figure it out as we go, is Paul. I want you to go and start this thing called church. It's going to be a new way of living life. We're going to have a new culture around here. And I'm going to show off, not just to the world, but to all the angelic powers, how I do things. They're going to look at this thing called church and talk about how wise I am. Amazing. And you know, while it's obvious that Paul had a hard job and it's obvious God was doing something new, what might surprise us is that many of the first century obstacles to kingdom culture are present day. They're the same today. They are not new. All right? We're entering into phase two of my message now. How am I doing on time? Anybody? Anybody? You know, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Oh, man, that's, that's not good. Now I'm tempted to meander. Now I don't need that water. Okay, let's look at some darn lies, first of all. <laughs> we don't like lies. We're going to get rid of these right now. If you've ever heard somebody say any of these things, I have no doubt they had a great heart and they meant well, but we can go ahead and dismiss them, okay? Here's three. Lie number one. But you don't understand. People are so much worse than they used to be. Darn lie. People have been really good at being really bad since a long time ago. Since this thing called the fall, okay? People are no better than they used to be, but they're certainly no worse. Always been kind of rotten. Lie number two. These issues have never come up before. Huh. Anybody, you know, on Facebook or whatever, I'm actually not on Facebook, praise the Lord, Almighty, I'm free, free, I'm free at last. But if you see people commenting on what's going on in the world, they say, this is just unprecedented. We're going to actually take issue with that here in a second. And line number three, we've never dealt, as a church, of course, we've never dealt with cultural pressure of this magnitude. I actually think on this one we have it easy. I think that one is way off. But let's go ahead and acknowledge that these are dermal lies. And let's look at what some issues of the first century included. Are you guys ready for this? Now, this is the world that Paul, an expert Jew, who's now getting his mind around the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, is sent into, okay, to make this new thing called church. And at the end, we're going to let him conclude in his own world words what the counterculture was that he thought was strong enough and amazing enough to overcome all these issues. Does that sound good? All right. Why is it doing that again? All right. Just when it's getting good. I just want to hear the spirit of that technology. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and start talking. <laughs> Issue number one, sexual immorality. You know, if you've ever heard somebody say, back in my day, we didn't, or back in my day, people used to, decency is gone, and the world's getting more and more indecent. You know, there are ebbs and flows of culture, and sometimes it aligns more with what we like as Christians, and sometimes it kind of falls off the map. But you know what? You can look back thousands of years ago, and things have not changed much. There was actually so much sexual immorality in the world surrounding Paul that when they kind of argued a little bit, and they had to decide exactly what laws are we going to hold these Gentile believers to? Are we going to make them follow the entire Old Testament? 
You know, and they had a big meeting about it, and they decided we're just going to get rid of these four super common, super weird kind of things that they all do. So this is what we're going to tell them. Acts 15, 28 to 29. The church council says to all the Gentile believers, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these, than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols. Okay, so don't, don't do that. Don't worship those idols by eating that food anymore. You must abstain from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals. And there we think maybe they were actually strangling it to retain the blood. And what kind of weird stuff are they doing with the blood? Who knows, all right? But don't do that. Food offered to idols, no good. Stop eating blood. Stop eating strangled animals. That's bizarre. Oh, and also, please abstain from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. So it's like, I hear church bells. It's stunning. <laughs> I never see it. But sexual immorality was so common and so completely pervasive that they had to put it in the letter to everybody. Like, look, can you just please, look, we got to talk about this. You can't be doing that anymore, guys. Just quit it. And they had every kind of weird sexual immorality that you can think of. Not new. This was an obstacle to the very first guy who tried to set up kingdom culture in the church. Romans 1, 26b to 27a. This is out of the New Living Translation. I've used that kind of heavily this evening. Paul is writing to the Roman church, and he's talking about the state of the world, and he says this. Even the women turned against the natural way of having sex and instead indulged in sex without, with each other. Oh, it gets weird later, so if that bothers you, I apologize. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Okay, sometimes we use verses like this and you hear it and it sounds angry and it sounds judgmental. Not my point tonight. Here's my point tonight. Do we see this in the world today? Yes. Not new. <laughs> not new at all, not even in the slightest. They were dealing with this when they went out to start church in the first place 2,000 years ago. It was common. It was everywhere. Okay? Paul just lances the boil. He's like, well, here's tons of things that are wrong with culture. This is something that's out there. He talks about it again in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. I did a whole message. Do you guys remember on 6 and on 6.11? That was pretty good. I said recorded. I like that one. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and they are absolutely famous for being sexually weird and promiscuous. And he says this. Do you not know, and he's writing to the church, and they needed to be reminded, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there we go, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, what's that word? Word. Word, thank you, God. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Anthony, you hate gay people, you wouldn't read that. Stop that. Don't play that game with me. Quit it. It's recorded. This is not saying that all these people, they're rare, and if you find them, they're especially bad. This is written because all these things were super common. It is not new. Paul is just talking about the issues that were prevalent in the culture of the day. He's not picking on anyone. He's just saying, all these things are current issues. They're everywhere. You swim in them in the current culture. And hey, God doesn't agree with these behaviors. So don't be deceived. And we see actually something very wonderful in this passage. One, it's written to the church, which tells you what? All these types of people are in the church, man. 
I mean, the door isn't closed to anybody. And then Paul says this. That is what some of you were. Let that talk to you about the culture that God is setting up in the church. Not only did all these people feel welcome to come, but all these people were cleansed, and all these people received new identities in Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't even hold those behaviors, as weird as we might think they are, over any of their heads. He uses the word, were. That's awesome that I digress, but I think it was appropriate there. So, sexual immorality of all types, not new. Absolutely not new. Very, very old. Probably as old as sex itself would be my guess. But you know what else isn't new? And this one might surprise us. Gender identity issues. Oh yeah, but did you know it's old? Gender confusion is an old thing. This is not a new thing. I got these from, uh, man, I love this book. It's by a guy named Robert A.J. Gagnon. That's called Homosexual Practice in the Bible, Texts and Hermeneutics. And it is 500 pages of solid gold. He tells you what the Bible says. He tells you what a bunch of people say it means. And he tells you what he thinks is the best argument. And it is great. And I suggest everybody buy it. That's just me. But in his research, this is what he discovers. In the ancient Near East, people believed that the goddess Ishtar could change someone's maleness into femaleness. And cult prostitutes for the goddess actually did that on purpose through the way they dressed, the way they acted. They carried little harps around and things. And they likely even mutilated or castrated their own genitals. Wow. But they believed that something was really happening. They believed they were really being transformed. And it was the work of the goddess, changing the maleness, excuse me, into femaleness. This doesn't go away. A first century Jewish writer named Philo talks about, this is roughly the time of Paul, guys is writing and says that some men intentionally took on femininity and, and this is a quote, with devotion practiced as an art to transform the male nature into the female. And so this time we get the word androgynous, androgynous, they're men and women. So somebody says, man, the world's definitely going downhill fast. Man, it's worse now than it's ever been. People, can you believe people are actually confused about what gender they are? Got some news. Not new. Can we all just say not new? One, two, three. Not new. Not new. The church has been dealing with this for forever. God has been setting up his kingdom culture to show off his wisdom, not only to all the people on the earth, but the very heavenly beings in the middle of this mess since it started. Since it started. Not new. Let's move on. Here we go. How about uh, economic tension? Is this in the news today? We have class warfare. Some guy in the 1800s said that the history of all humanity has been the history of class struggle. One of the Marx brothers, I think. Anyway, so here's some economic tension in the Bible. Let's talk about rich people. Everybody that voted for Bernie said, no, don't do that. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry I didn't say that. Rich people. You know what? Sometimes rich people cause problems. Oh, this is a shock, isn't it? It's crazy. You can read in Acts chapter 5, two people that were pretty wealthy named Ananias and Sapphira try to pull a fast one on the church. And you know, at the end of Acts chapter 4, there's this guy named Barnabas. You might recognize him. He was the guy sent out with Paul to start the church. He sold a field that he owned, and he gave the money to the apostles. And apparently he got a name, son of encouragement. He had standing in the church. He had a reputation for being a giver. So these people wanted that too. And they tried to pull a fast one, sell some land, keep part of the money, give a portion of the money, say it was all the money, so they can have their cake and eat it too. They can buy standing in the church, 
and they can fleece their pocketbooks. They die. God says, you lie to the Holy Spirit, we're all done here. Whoa. And you know, James also, and this is the only reference that isn't called for this whole message, James says something about how we treat wealthy people in the church in James 1, 3 to 4. James says this, How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And you give special attention and a good seat, that's important, special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or else sit on the floor. Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by an evil intent? I think is that word I have. Evil motives, thank you. So, what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you, this is an honor-shame culture, and if you want to dive more into it, I would get this book, The Lost Letters of Pergamum. It is fantastic. It is a quick read, but it's not necessarily a light read. And one of the things the author talks about is that in this culture, they were all about honor. They were obsessed with climbing higher and higher on the honor scale. You know who had honor that you wanted to associate with? Rich people. You know who was dishonorable that you didn't want to associate with? Poor people. And James... And the Holy Spirit in this Ananias and Sapphira episode is essentially saying, do not bring that culture's idea of what is honorable and what is dishonorable into this culture. We don't judge that that way here. It has no matter, it doesn't matter at all if you're rich or poor. When you come in here, you have equal standing. And if you view people different because you think you might gain something from their coming into your church, you're sinning. End of story. But, you know, this tension between the have and the have-nots, or people who are rich and people who are poor and blah, 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 not new. We've been sorting this out for 2,000 years, trying to figure out how to have a kingdom culture that mitigates it. But you know what? Needy people also create some issues. We're swinging around to the other side now. Acts 4, 32 to 35. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. Wow. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them. There were no needy people among them. That's astounding. Because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. If we stop there, if we cut that out of our Bible, and we take it home, and we frame it, and we put it on a wall, you can come up with some very strange and very failed <laughs> economic systems. Sadly, while their hearts were 100% godly and 100% right to be generous with what they had, to consider their own belongings as blessings and not really their own possessions, to look out for the needs of others instead of just their own needs, that was 100% good and 100% great, and it didn't last long. Soon, you had some widows saying, hey, what do you mean there's no need around here? We're being neglected in the distribution of food. And they look around and they're like, ooh, crap, we made a mistake. You were neglected in the distribution of food. Uh, maybe the apostles are really good at being apostles, but not so great at waiting tables. We need to hire some managers. So they had some people come in who could do that kind of thing, one of which was Stephen. And the system developed. How do we work out this culture in a growing system? And you know what? We see rules and regulations put in place. Paul, writing to one of his, his leaders, and 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, is talking about what type of widow qualifies for service. Hold on, I just want to talk about Acts chapter 4. We have to talk about the whole word, guys. Sorry, check this out. 
A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old, was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. She has brought up her children. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? In other words, you don't just put anybody on the list to get support from the church. You have to be, you have to meet these qualifications to get help. Why? Isn't that heartless? No, of course not, because the church isn't the only safety net. He says strong words for people that won't help their own family. Please move forward, slide. I don't want to tap it again, because then you'll change on me. I'm doing it. All right? Nope. That's not it. Yes. Now we look at 1 Timothy 5, verses 8 and 16 together. Check this out. This is Paul's strong words for to tell. He says, Timothy, tell people in the church this. Those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. And then verse 16. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, then she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. The church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Anthony, this is about the church. Why are you saying all this stuff? I'm just saying, Paul was in the weeds, man. Back in Acts chapter 13, when the Holy Spirit says, Paul and Barnabas, you're my guys. Go figure this thing out. But it's crazy out there. That's crazy. It's only going to seem crazier when you start doing it. And there's going to be a lot of issues to solve. I was listening to a commentator. I'm not going to get too political, I promise, but I think this is amusing. And uh, the guy was actually pretty conservative, and he was just shaking his head, and he's like, Trump, it's like he sees an issue that could be potentially disastrous for him. It's a landmine, and he jumps on it. He jumps on it every time. Why does it feel like he has to jump on every single landmine? You know, and, and they were just kind of like, this is unbelievable. He's like the worst PR person ever in the world. We've never seen anything this bad. But I find it amusing that when Paul went out to start the church, he had no choice but to jump on the mines. He had no choice but to go into the weeds. He had no choice but to tackle the hard issues, to pray, to get wisdom from the Holy Spirit, and to implement. This is not new. One more regarding kingdom culture with people that need stuff. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-10. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives. And don't follow the tradition they received from us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night. We wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yep, Is this from the same Bible where they were having everything in common? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And they're not in conflict. You see somebody that has a need? You can meet that need, meet it. It's just saying people shouldn't take advantage of that. Good grief. But does it seem confusing? Is there tension here? Is there conflict? How do we walk this out? Man, yeah. It was rough back then too. Not new. Not new. We have a whole bunch of other tensions I won't go into. I didn't even talk about racial tension. I thought it was almost dumb to go into it with the tension between the Jews and every other nation on earth. Kind of self-explanatory. It existed. They had to deal with it. Political tension. Acts 16.20. An angry mob wants to throw Paul in jail because he's teaching things that are anti-Roman. Romans 13. Paul talks about how you shouldn't be anti-Roman. You should pay your taxes. Interesting. The perception was not the reality. Battle of the sexes. Paul had to deal with that too. 
Well, my husband thinks he owns me. My wife, blah, blah, blah. I can just imagine it. He's like, okay, this is the kingdom perspective on that. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11, but more importantly, Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. Spoiler alert, men, you might be in charge, but you have to have the selfless heart of Christ. Who gets the better end of the deal? I will let you ponder that. <laughs> Master-slave relationships. We don't have to deal with this anymore. Guess what? Paul did. They owned people as property back in the day. What do you do when you and your slave are going to church together? And you can't bring that here. You're equal. Lost Letters of Pergamum is very interesting trying to deal with this as well. But you can read about it in Ephesians 6 and the entire book of Philemon. And on, and on, and on, and on, and on. God started the church not as a gathering for us to feel special or have something to do on Sunday. He started the church because he was injecting his culture into earth and this group of people. And he meant it to overcome all of these tensions. He meant it as the solution to all the broken garbage in the world and all the evil that people did to each other and all the misperceptions we had about what existence even is, whether it be sexual or economic or racial or anything. He's like, I've got a plan. I'm going to show off my wisdom to the whole world. Everybody's going to be astounded by this culture. And I think I have, right here, it was on the back of your bulletin if you got one. I just couldn't write anything better than Paul wrote himself. So I'm going to read what I believe is a description, a brief description, of the culture that Paul wanted to create. The culture that God thought could overcome all this mess. You want to hear about this? It starts with Paul's view of himself and his life in his past that he used to be very proud of. And it moves on to how Paul wants all of us to view the world and each other in the church. Can I read this for you guys? Sure. It's long. You sure? I can just stop. No, I'm just kidding. You know I myself. <laughs> I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate that make me truly happy? by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, 
He gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest, of high, uh, to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you have followed my instructions always when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing, so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life, and then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not embrace in vain. And my work was not useless. Philippians 3, 4-9 and 2, 1-16. Wow. If we all individually and corporately had this mindset and this culture, I think it would be amazing how quickly these sticking points that we imported into the church would be unsticky. They'd be dealt with. Many things that we think would be insurmountable tensions would be dealt with. I want to challenge everybody here. This is in the back of every bulletin. You don't have to do this. It's not one of those things. I won't quiz you. But take this home. Put it in your pocket. Forget about it. And then when you wonder what's in your pocket and you pull it out, inevitably, read it again. Read it again. And just once this next week, try to evaluate your own heart with this sheet of paper. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. I'm going to give it to Shamrock to close. <laughs>